On a hot summer day in 1941, William Siebold sat in his cramped New York office and wiped the perspiration off his hands. But the weather wasn't the only factor making him sweat. He was on an undercover assignment for the FBI. Siebold looked toward a massive mirror on the wall. Though he couldn't see them, he knew federal agents were watching from the other side, waiting to see if he'd pull off his mission. As the bell over the door rang, Fritz Duquesne walked in and shook Siebold's hand. Siebold tried to act natural, but it was difficult. Duquesne was a known Nazi saboteur, and Siebold had to bring him down. Duquesne took a pack of chewing gum from his pocket and placed it on the desk. Siebold was confused. A wry smile spread over Duquesne's face. He explained this wasn't any ordinary pack of gum. It was a bomb. Siebold's heart raced. He tried not to look at the one-way mirror. This was what he and the federal agents had been waiting for. Duquesne explained his bomb could hit the Americans where they were most vulnerable, power plants, factories, and military compounds. Siebold knew exactly what Duquesne meant. The Nazi saboteur was going to bring Hitler's invasion to New York City. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the New York World's Fair bombing. In 1940, an explosive took the lives of Detective Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha. Despite a wide-scale investigation, police never found the culprit, and the case remains open to this day. Last time, we explored how tensions in Europe spurred terrorist threats that culminated in the deaths of the two police officers. We then followed the NYPD as they scrambled to identify possible suspects. Today, we'll try to uncover who could have planted the bomb and why. The explosive could have been the work of a Nazi spy with a tragic past and a murderous vendetta. Or perhaps it was a false flag operation carried out by one of the United States' most trusted allies. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. You just can't miss it. 
life tonight. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On July 4th, 1940, sticks of dynamite exploded in a field at the New York World's Fair, taking the lives of detectives Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha. To the NYPD, the attack felt personal. So the authorities sprang into action, attempting to find the culprits. Due to a lack of any clear leads, they focused on their first piece of evidence, the explosive device itself. As a reminder, an electrician found a mysterious ticking package a full day before it exploded. Usually, a time bomb blows up when the clock hands hit a specific time. But 24 hours later, it still hadn't gone off. The detectives cut a hole in the package and peered inside. But before they could get a good look, the sticks of dynamite exploded, killing them both. In the aftermath, one investigator located a small cogwheel several yards from the blast site. Forensic analysis attributed the piece to an Ingram alarm clock, which only needs to be rewound every eight days. It's possible the bombers set their explosive to go off when the clock hit its eighth day. But that wouldn't explain why it only detonated when Socha and Lynch examined it. It seemed like an astonishing coincidence that the timer would happen to hit its designated hour right when the bomb squad was on site. It seemed some other factor triggered the explosion, but nobody knew what it could be. The NYPD had never encountered a bomb like this before. They didn't know what it was or who made it, but thankfully they received one last clue. One month after the explosion, a night watchman in the British pavilion discovered a small Nazi flag. It was planted in nearly the same spot where the electrician found the original bomb. Maybe it was a sign Hitler's supporters had slaughtered the two detectives. And it wasn't the only indication Nazis were responsible. By the time the New York World's Fair opened in 1940, it felt like the violence in Europe could spill over to the United States at any moment. That year, Hitler invaded France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. With those countries under his control, his next step was clear, a direct attack on Great Britain. And the English worried it wouldn't be much of a contest. In the years following World War I, Germany had spent time and resources strengthening their military. Now it was more powerful and better funded than the British Army. 
Only one nation could possibly stand in their way, the United States. And while the U.S. hadn't officially entered the war, the Nazis feared they'd get involved any day now. They needed to prepare for opposition, so they set up a spy network within the U.S. The United States had the CIA, Great Britain, MI6, and Nazi Germany, the Opfer, a military intelligence organization that specialized in wiretapping and uncovering the secrets of enemy nations. The Opfer wanted to infiltrate the organizations that ran the American infrastructure. They dispatched German-American operatives to pose as loyal Americans, glean information, and pass it on. Some of these expats still felt a patriotic duty to their homeland, but others resisted Nazi rule. When prospective agents refused to betray the U.S., the Opfer had a couple of tricks up their sleeve. Coercion and blackmail. Take William Siebold, who was born in Germany and became a smuggler at a young age. Following World War I, he escaped his life of crime and immigrated to the United States. He got a job at an aircraft factory and became a naturalized citizen. But in 1939, after two decades of living in the States, he returned to Hamburg, Germany to visit his mother. He promptly caught the attention of the Gestapo, who invited Siebold to work for the Opfer. Siebold wanted nothing to do with it, but the Gestapo had, let's say, a knack for persuasion. They told Siebold if he didn't cooperate with them, they'd alert American authorities to his history as a smuggler. And if that didn't convince him, they also threatened to throw his family into a concentration camp. Siebold had no choice. He agreed to work for the Nazis. When Siebold returned to the U.S., he'd work as an undercover radio operator in Long Island, New York, supposedly passing state secrets to the Germans. His position would make him privy to all sorts of confidential intel, especially from the spy ringleader, Fritz Joubert Duquesne. But the Nazis made one key mistake with William Siebold, trusting him. While in spy school in Germany, Siebold told his handlers he had to wire money to his family in the United States. They permitted him to visit the American consulate in Cologne. Then he told the consulate everything, the Nazi plan, the radio transmissions, even his previously undisclosed criminal record. When he offered himself up as an American operative, the FBI immediately realized Siebold would be the perfect double agent. Upon his return to the U.S., FBI agents set Siebold up in a radio station where he could transmit information to the Third Reich. Then they outfitted his cramped office space with microphones, cameras, and a one-way mirror. Here, Siebold would meet with the Nazi agents and gather their intel, and the FBI would hear every word. The German spies passed Siebold info about American manufacturing plants and new U.S. military products, like gas masks for soldiers. Of course, the FBI already knew all this, but now they could monitor how much the Nazis knew about them, and they could identify where the U.S. was most vulnerable. They also heard plenty of chit-chat about the Nazi spy ring and the Obvers' goals. 
and in the spring of 1940, Siebold started receiving visits from the head of the spy network himself, Fritz Joubert Duquesne. And Duquesne wasn't interested in chatting about Nazi intel. In fact, his aspirations were deadly. Coming up, the Nazi saboteur with a secret bomb. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1940, William Siebold met with dozens of Nazi spies, but one stood out above the rest. His name was Fritz Joubert Duquesne, and he hated Great Britain with every fiber of his being. Duquesne was born on a farm in British-controlled South Africa in 1877. His uncle fought the British in the First Anglo-Boer War. At just 12 years old, Duquesne saw a man attack his mother. Thinking fast, Duquesne grabbed the attacker's spear and thrust it into his belly, killing the assailant. From then on out, death didn't bother him. All he cared about was keeping his family safe. In 1899, the 22-year-old Duquesne followed in his uncle's footsteps and joined the South African Boer forces to fight the British. His sharpshooting skills were so potent, he earned the nickname Black Panther. Word of Duquesne's unparalleled abilities traveled, and he soon became a high-profile target of the British Army. They hired a hitman to track down and kill the young guerrilla soldier, but the assassin failed. So the British Army did the next best thing. They went after his family. At one point during the war, Duquesne took a trip home, but discovered English soldiers had gotten there first. They'd burned the entire estate to the ground and brutally murdered his sister and uncle. From that day on, Duquesne swore revenge against the British. So when World War I broke out, he happily signed on as a German operative. During the war, he mastered the art of explosives. He crated orchids and precious minerals and shipped them off to England, at least officially. In reality, these boxes were laden with bombs, which he claimed sunk more than 20 British vessels. To avoid arrest, he faked his own death. Then, during World War II, he posed as an American civilian and provided valuable information to the Obfair. But unlike his cohorts, Duquesne wasn't satisfied to merely pass intel along. He wanted to make a real impact. So he told Siebold he planned to blow up certain targets on American soil. A General Electric plant in Schenectady and the DuPont factory in Delaware. 
and though he didn't say it outright, there was possibly one last target in New York City, the 1940 New York World's Fair. The event served as an example of peace and unity between nations. So if Duquesne wanted to send a message, the World's Fair would be the perfect place to do it. And he even had a personal invention that would perfectly fit the attacks. He'd wrap a chewed piece of gum around a phosphorus compound. Then he could place the explosive anywhere, and it would look like he was just discarding his gum. He called it a chiclet bomb. The bomb would only explode at temperatures above 72 degrees. If it was below that threshold, it wouldn't go off. Which might explain what happened at the World's Fair on July 4th. Remember, an electrician found the package in the air conditioning room, a space filled with fans that kept the building cool. We can assume it was likely below 72 degrees in there. But then the park officers brought the package out into a field, right in the middle of summer. Nobody opened the satchel until Lynch and Sosha showed up. But after examining the package, Detective Lynch cut a small hole in the bottom and hot air flowed into the bag. Then the chiclet bomb went off, just as Duquesne planned. However, there are problems with this explanation. First of all, it might not have been warm enough outside to detonate the explosive. According to some weather reports, the beginning of July 1940 was pretty cold. The day the bomb went off, it may have even been raining. On top of that, when Lynch and Socha peered into the bag, they discovered sticks of dynamite wrapped in a cloth. They didn't report seeing any gum or powder. It's possible the chiclet bomb was small enough to hide behind the dynamite. That way, no one would know about his invention or that it came from a Nazi agent. And Germany likely didn't want to be blamed for an attack on the U.S. at this point. Early in 1940, a low-ranking diplomat, the German embassy's chargé d'affaires, Dr. Hans Thompson, had learned of a similar Nazi plot to bomb American cities. Thompson knew the United States military might could spell doom for the Nazis. And if Americans discovered the Germans had bombed their country, the public would demand retaliation. So the diplomat wrote to the head of the Opfer and told him to terminate any sabotage operations in the U.S. But the German intelligence leader was confused. He claimed he hadn't given any sabotage orders. In fact, he assured Thompson the Nazi high command shared his feelings about not provoking the Americans. Their orders were strict. Spies in the U.S. were only to gather information, not perform sabotage. It's possible Duquesne went rogue and disobeyed these instructions, but it's not likely. In fact, the best evidence against this explanation came from the operatives themselves. In 1941, using Siebold's intelligence, the FBI arrested 33 German agents, including Duquesne. Many cooperated with the authorities to commute their sentences. Yet none of them ever mentioned a plot against the World's Fair. Even during his discussion of bombs with Siebold, Duquesne never directly mentioned the New York World's Fair bombing. Maybe a different Nazi spy ring executed the attack. 
But it's just as likely the Germans had nothing to do with it. If Nazi spies weren't behind the explosion, maybe someone framed the Third Reich to spur the United States to fight the Germans. One country had the motive to pull off such a horrific stunt. The U.S.'s closest ally, Great Britain. Coming up, a British spy with a secret mission. Now, back to the story. On the morning of May 18, 1940, Winston Churchill hunched over his wash basin and slid a razor over his stubbly jaw. He'd only been prime minister for a week, but he was already consumed by war meetings and strategy sessions. The only time he could think was in the morning while getting ready. In a nearby chair, his 28-year-old son, Randolph, waited for him to finish shaving. For a few minutes, they sat in silence, but then Churchill told Randolph something his son would never forget. He said he knew exactly how to defeat the Nazis. Randolph was stunned. At that time, the situation seemed hopeless. Germany had invaded half of Europe. England would be next. He asked his father what he was talking about. Churchill threw the razor in the sink, swiveled around, and said with a fire in his eyes, Of course we can beat them. I shall drag the United States in. Weeks later, in June 1940, France finally fell to Germany. Churchill knew his army could only hold out for so long against the superior Nazi military. They needed help. So he wrote to President Roosevelt and implored him to enter the war. He said if the United States didn't join the fight soon, any future intervention may be too late. Churchill knew the Americans were his only hope. There was just one problem. Many people in the U.S. had no interest in entering a European war. The devastation of World War I was still fresh in their memories, especially the loss of over 100,000 American lives. But Churchill had a secret. An agent named William Stevenson, who would become the inspiration for Ian Fleming's James Bond. Like 007, Stevenson excelled at hand-to-hand combat, oozed charm, and always enjoyed a strong martini. However, it's not clear if he preferred it shaken or stirred. Stevenson started off less like James Bond, though, and more like Bruce Wayne. In the mid-1930s, the Canadian-born 38-year-old was a millionaire living in London with investments in plastic, steel, and even film. He took a business trip to Nazi Germany and discovered most of their steel went straight to the manufacture of weapons. It was as if the entire country were secretly preparing for war. Stevenson had lived in England since World War I, and he felt a strong loyalty for the British. So, shortly after his trip, he established his own intelligence agency to spy on the Germans. He came to MI6 with any info he gleaned, At first, they were reluctant to work with the businessman, but his high-quality intel won them over. And Stevenson wasn't just a spymaster. He also had the ferocity and courage of a frontline soldier. In 1938, as Hitler threatened to launch the Second World War, Stevenson proposed the British government assassinate the dictator. 
He laid out a plan that involved a sniper eliminating Hitler with a telescopic sighting rifle. He even volunteered to take the shot. Instead, the British government signed the Munich Agreement with Nazi Germany. The deal gave Hitler control of the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. It was meant to appease him and prevent war. But the following year, Hitler seized the rest of the country and conquered Poland. Perhaps Great Britain should have taken Stevenson up on his offer. When Hitler invaded France in the spring of 1940, only 7% of Americans favored going to war with Germany. And a few months later, when France fell, just one in three Americans believed the U.S. should help England. The British government needed to find a way to swing U.S. public opinion. So on June 3, 1940, Churchill established the Manhattan-based British Security Coordination, or BSC, with one goal. Increase American support for the UK. And if possible, pull the United States into the war. At that point, Churchill had been working with Stevenson for a few years. The Prime Minister trusted him and knew he'd do anything for England. So he put the 43-year-old Canadian in charge of the BSC and sent him to the States. On June 21, 1940, William Stevenson stepped off the boat in Manhattan. But there was no time to settle in. He had to get to work right away. Stevenson began BSC operations only two weeks before the World's Fair bomb went off on July 4th. And its headquarters were secretly located in the Rockefeller Center, just 10 miles from the fair. It's possible Stevenson chose the park as a target, If he and his team bombed the British pavilion, American citizens would assume the Germans were behind the attack. Then, public opinion might turn in favor of entering the war and helping the British. There's no definitive evidence to prove the BSC considered this strategy, but it wouldn't be the first time a government performed what's known as a false flag operation. This is when a state commits an attack, sometimes against its own citizens, and blames it on another group to lure the country into war. In 1939, Russia bombed their own village of Mainila and used the assault to justify invading Finland. And in 1953, British MI6 agents bombarded mosques in Iran and blamed it on the communist supporters of the Iranian prime minister. Within months, the PM was out of power, exactly what the British wanted. And those are just the missions we know about. Perhaps they used the same tactic 13 years earlier. William Stevenson could have planted the bomb to frame Germany and instigate an American response. After all, he'd lived in Great Britain for over 20 years and would have done anything to help England win the war. However, he would have faced a major challenge, smuggling the explosive into the fair without detection. But he might have had a solution to that. Most of the staff who worked at the pavilion used to be in the British military. They handled all of their own security, not the police. It would have been easy for Stevenson to contact one or two of these ex-soldiers and ask them to perform a service for their country. Maybe he even had one of them slip the package into the air conditioning room. That might sound a little far-fetched, but after the explosion, 
some detectives suspected it was an inside job. Commissioner Louis Valentine claimed the bomb was so carefully placed, it had to have been planted by someone who knew the building inside and out, maybe even a pavilion employee. The NYPD alleged the fan room had been chosen strategically. It was on the second floor, in the center of the complex, where a bomb would do the most damage. If the device had detonated there, its estimated hundreds could have been killed. A tragedy of that magnitude certainly would have gotten the White House's attention. But it also would have been a terrible atrocity. It's hard to imagine the British government authorizing an attack on a structure filled with their own citizens. Which is exactly why they may have taken steps to rescue them. On July 1st, three days before the incident, an operator at the British Pavilion received a call. The voice on the other end was muffled and difficult to identify. But the words were clear. The voice said, quote, Get out of the building. We are going to blow it up. Get everybody out before the box explodes. Investigators never discovered who made that call. But maybe a member of the BSC attempted to evacuate his own people to avoid loss of life. And police files show, after the explosion, the American authorities weren't allowed to speak to pavilion staff without approval from British officials. When cops tried to speak to eyewitnesses, permission wasn't always granted. Some researchers wondered if the British refused to cooperate because they knew exactly how the bomb made it to the fan room. They put it there themselves. While this explanation is intriguing, there's little evidence to support it. There's no direct connection between Great Britain and the July 4th attack, and police never made any arrests. Plus, Stevenson only arrived in New York a couple of weeks before the bombing. According to author Henry Hemming's book, Agents of Influence, most of that time was spent organizing his team and establishing connections in Manhattan. Though Stevenson was never linked to the bombing, he wasn't above deceiving the United States. In June 1941, American newspapers reported the British had completed a heroic parachute raid and captured 40 Nazi pilots. The public was enthralled with the story, but it was a lie, concocted by Stevenson's agents to convince the U.S. that Great Britain could stand up to the Nazis. And in October 1941, British intelligence sent President Roosevelt a map of South America. They claimed it was authored by Hitler himself and made it seem like the German dictator was planning to invade at any moment. But once again, this document was a forgery. Stevenson made it with his team to incite outrage. So even if he wasn't responsible for the July 4th bombing, the suave agent clearly had a knack for misinformation and manipulation. So much so, his cloak-and-dagger adventures were immortalized, albeit under a different name. In 1941, Stevenson established a training school in Ontario, Canada called Camp X, there, spies learned the art of undercover work and experimented with advanced gadgetry. There, Stevenson met a young royal intelligence officer named Ian Fleming. Right away, 
the two struck up a close friendship that lasted for years. And later, Fleming went on to create James Bond, one of the most iconic characters of all time. In a book about the BSC, Fleming answered the question of whether Bond was based on anyone in real life. He didn't mince words. He said, Such a man is the quiet Canadian, otherwise Sir William Stevenson. He is the man who became one of the great secret agents of the last war. Though the inspiration for Bond is now known, the identity of the New York World's Fair bomber remains a mystery. As late as 2015, the Daily Beast reported the case was still open, along with the $26,000 reward. It's never been adjusted for inflation, a sad sign the city isn't as committed to solving the crime as they once were. We may never know who killed Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha. It could have been the Germans, the British, or another nation attempting to send a message. And whoever the culprit was, they weren't alone in wanting to strike terror into American hearts. Just a year and a half after the tragedy, the United States was attacked again. This time at a naval base in Hawaii. And there was no doubt who committed this atrocity. The next day, the United States declared war on Japan and Germany soon declared war on the U.S. Nine out of ten Americans now favored fighting the Nazis. Great Britain finally had what it needed, an ally against Hitler. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the New York World's Fair bombing, amongst the many sources we used, we found James Marrow's book, Twilight at the World of Tomorrow, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Ben Caro and Angela Jorgensen, Fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Travis Clark. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.